Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. Premiering in 1850 in a production led by none other than composer Franz Liszt, Lohengrin was a resounding and immediate success. While at one point in time it was performed yearly at the Met, it returned this season after a 17-year absence. Find out more about this soaring masterpiece on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. We are delighted to invite you to the 18th Annual Opera News Awards. This year's honorees, soprano Lisa Davidson, soprano Erin Morley, and tenor George Shirley, will be feted at a black tie dinner gala on April 16th at the Plaza Hotel. Musical tributes by Stephanie Blythe and Latonia Moore will be performed in honor of the recipients, and this exciting gala will also feature appearances by Lawrence Brownlee, Joshua Hopkins, and Anna Maria Martinez. The Metropolitan Opera Guild acknowledges with great appreciation our sponsor for the 18th Annual Opera News Awards, the Lloyd E. Riddler Lawrence E. Deutsch Foundation. For more information or to purchase your ticket, please visit www.metguild.org awards or call us at 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. Lohengrin is a pivotal work in Wagner's stylistic development, showcased by his tremendous ability to represent the psychology of his characters through music. Lohengrin returned to the Met stage this season in a brand new production by director Francois Girard, whose previous work included the Met's stunning production of Parsifal in 2013. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we are joined by Guild lecturer John J.H. Muller as he explores the history and music of this epic tale of the mysterious Swan Knight. Uh, the last six weeks or so, I have been absolutely immersed in Lohengrin. I think I'm going to turn into a swan. Um, or- <laughs> some kind of Wagnerian waterfowl. Um, I've been teaching a graduate seminar in, on Wagner. We spent four weeks on Lohengrin, 
And when we moved on to the next topic, I kept bringing up Lohengrin. Uh, I was finding something more to say about it. And um, I had a couple of uh, classes uh, with adult laymen I teach on Lohengrin. I'm doing this lecture for you tonight. And I've got another lecture on Lohengrin coming up in a couple of weeks. So yeah, I've really been immersed in this. And uh, so it raises the, raises the question for me, what should I focus on? Uh, because there's so many different ways now I could approach this. I think most useful would be a, a brief study of the characters, the three main characters in the opera, and then to view Lohengrin as a pivotal work in Wagner's career. Um, a piece, a pivotal work in his stylistic development. Um, we have elements of an earlier style in Lohengrin and also the uh, direction he was going to take in the future. Okay, so that's going to be the main emphasis on the style you're hearing in this piece. Um, as you may know, uh, the Met has not done Lohengrin in 17 years. It is by far the longest gap in Lohengrin performances in the Met's history. There was a time when Lohengrin was heard every year. Um, it, and once it was the uh, most popular of Wagner's operas uh, here and in other opera houses in Europe, it has kind of slipped to the periphery of the standard repertoire uh, since the Second World War. It is gradually slipping away, although those 17 years, that was pretty extreme. Um, I'm very fortunate, having been to Bayreuth and lecturing there for about 10 years, so I've seen Lohengrin recently, uh, I don't know, five or six times. Uh, but I've been meeting many people who basically don't know the opera very well if they only see opera in New York because it simply hasn't been done. Okay, so let's get started with the uh, main characters of the opera. Wagner, of course, in his works, shows a tremendous insight into the psychology of his characters, and he has a great ability to bring them to life musically, to embody in his music uh, what's going on, you might say, intrapsychically. Uh, this is especially true of the later works, of course. Uh, consider Tristan. Uh, in the last act of Tristan, he basically puts himself on the couch and undergoes an hour and a half self-analysis, okay? And finally kind of learns how he got to who he is. Now, we can't expect that kind of depth in Lohengrin, so any discussion of the characters um, and so forth, it has to be more provisional in nature. Any interpretation has to be a little bit more provisional. Uh, but let's start with Elsa, who I think has been a very misunderstood character in the opera. Um, consider the different traumas she has suffered leading up to the beginning of the opera. Both of her parents have died, and as a result, she and her younger brother, the future Duke of Brabant, uh, have become wards of Telramund, with the idea that Elsa, when she came of age, would marry Telramund, who is a noble in the area. But when it appears that uh, she killed her brother, Telramund rejects her and also suggests, because of her dreamy state, that she has a secret lover. And therefore, he rejects her and marries Ortrud, the um, pagan princess. And then the worst trauma, of course, is the disappearance of her brother. They went off into the woods one day, and he disappeared. And again, she's been accused of killing him. And uh, she was the older sibling. She's the older sister. And therefore, she would have been very protective of this brother. And now he has disappeared. Um, her very first line in the opera when she's called to give an accounting of herself is, my poor brother. That's what's on her mind. All right. So I would consider these traumas that she has suffered leading up to the opera 
and then consider that she might uh, experience these as abandonment. Uh, all the closest people in her life have abandoned her, um, and this could lead to a lack of self-worth on her part. And that issue comes up in the first act and in the last act. You know, is she worthy of this man, Lohengrin? And then in addition to that, I really see her as being in kind of a disassociative state. Um, she's created a fantasy world for herself, has retreated into a dream world, and she sounds very much removed from the rest of the characters, uh, musically. Again, as a result of these traumas she's suffered, she simply withdraws and creates this uh, dream world, fantasy world of herself. Therefore, it's no wonder that Ortrud could prey on her fears and could suggest, you know, anyone who arrives so mysteriously could leave just as mysteriously. Um, so I think it's quite understanding you know, how Ortrud could work on her and then question Lohengrin. Uh, she was just ripe for that. Yes, so those are some ideas on Elsa. And again, listen to her music, not just the dream narration in the first act, but even later. It has this otherworldly, dreamlike quality, and again, seems to set her apart from everyone else in Brabant. Um, and then Lohengrin himself. Um, he may seem to be a rather, rather a stock character, um, more a symbol of heroic, knightly rectitude than an actual human being. Um, but Wagner himself had an explanation for this. Um, Wagner said Lohengrin sought love unconditionally. He didn't want to be loved or he didn't want adulation because he's a Grail Knight and the son of the king of the Grail Knights. He simply wanted to be accepted as a man and uh, didn't want anybody to know about his background. And that would be why he puts what we see as unrealistic demands upon Elsa. Okay, never ask where I come from or what my name is. And so again, uh, Wagner gave that explanation uh, concerning Lohengrin. Um, and Wagner also identified very much with the character. Wagner was someone who had a desire to be understood and he didn't want people questioning him. <laughs> and uh, there's some of that in Lohengrin. He seeks an understanding, but can't let on who he really is doesn't want that question. Um, however, as the opera progresses, Lohengrin does take on somewhat more uh, the human expressions you might expect um, in Act Two, when she starts wavering, when she's faltering because Ortrud has shown up in the middle of her procession to the cathedral, and Lohengrin says, in your hand, in your devotion, lie the pledge of all happiness. Okay. That's what he says as he sees her beginning to falter. And then uh, during the bridal chamber scene, I'll discuss that later, but again, uh, he has various lines that are trying to uh, bring her back to him, and ultimately it does not work. Um, also, Lohengrin may seem outside the society as well. Uh, from the prelude of the opera, representing the grail, and throughout you have this high strings, uh, creating a very ethereal, uh, luminous, I always hear it as a kind of cerulean blue uh, sound uh, to the piece. It's unearthly. And that music frequently comes back when Lohengrin is going to sing something. It puts a kind of halo around him and really separates him also from the rest of the society. So you have these two people, Elsa and Lohengrin, who for different reasons uh, seem to be 
set apart, uh, kind of floating above the rest of the people. And then there's Ortrude. Uh, she's a wonderful character, a, a portrait of duplicity, uh, a malignant force. She was created by Wagner himself. Uh, she does not appear in his medieval sources. Um, Wagner needed some spark, some dramatic spark, to make the piece work, uh, to turn it from a medieval epic into some kind of drama that could work on the stage, and therefore he created the role of Ortrud. So she preys not just on Elsa's fears, but also on her goodness. Elsa really has a very good heart, she's empathetic, and therefore Ortrud in the second act really preys on that um, and acts in a very servile manner as if she's a maid to Elsa, when in fact she's really very much the opposite. She's an outsider. Uh, she's from a northern part of the area. Uh, she's the last of her line, the last of a pagan line. And that becomes an issue in the opera, uh, the Christian world uh, that the rest of the people belong to. Um, and then this one last element of the pre-Christian time, a pagan. And uh, I think that may be more of an issue in the opera than it may appear on the surface. And I'll point out some of that as we get further into the piece. Wagner said about Ortrud in a letter to Liszt, she does not know love. Her nature is politics. And uh, she wants to marry into this family, perhaps hopeful of restoring their pagan background and their pagan traditions. But that's a great line. She does not know love. Her nature is politics. And certainly, one doesn't sense any love between Ortrud and her husband, Telramund. Um, and for that matter, there's a very chaste quality between Elsa and Lohengrin, and uh, I would say it's Wagner's chastest opera. Uh, consider what came just before it, Tannhäuser, okay? And Tannhäuser, you know, torn between the sacred and the profane, and here you have this kind of idealistic sort of love of those two presented in the opera, and nothing between Telramund and Ortrud. It's all politics. Now, on this issue of the musical style of the piece, uh, I was discussing this with a conductor just about a month ago, and he said, you really have to listen to Lohengrin from the standpoint of Weber, Karl Maria von Weber, one of the people who some 20, 30 years before had created a German romantic opera. You can't really expect it to sound like Tristan or The Ring. And I agree with this to some extent. On the other hand, you can't unhear Tristan and, there, and everything that came after it. And therefore, you're going to compare Lohengrin to that unfavorably, I think. So you really have to try to hear this work coming out of the world, earlier world, of Weber and German romantic opera. Uh, the problem is, how much Weber do you know? The last time uh, the Met did Weber's most famous opera, Der Freischutz, I was a freshman in college. <laughs> Careful, people. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a while, okay? And, uh, but Weber was an influence on Wagner, and Wagner had a very high regard for the composer. But looking at it from a different standpoint, a uh, major Wagner scholar, John Dethridge, has said, Lohengrin is where the music of the future begins. In other words, these ideas that Wagner is moving towards, the ring cycle, Gesamtkunstwerk, and so forth, that's starting in Lohengrin. So really, it's, it's a mixture of these things, and we have to uh, consider that in the piece. 
Uh, so this work is really bringing a phase of his career to a close. It's the end for Wagner of German romantic opera. Um, his previous two works, The Flying Dutchman and Tannhäuser and now Lohengrin, all had the genre designation of romantic opera. Tannhäuser was a grand romantic opera. He never used the term again. Okay, never again. So he recognized this was the end of the line for him, and he's bringing this style to a perfection, to a completion, and then would have to move in a different direction. And that would be, again, the beginnings of the ring some five years later, as far as the music is concerned. So as I said, he's summarizing past styles. We're getting a glimpse into the future. The thing is, they are blended perfectly in the work. One doesn't get a sense of a uh, stylistic incongruity. Um, it all seems to work together in this particular piece. Now, getting into a little bit more detail on what he may have taken from these earlier kinds of music, his debt to Weber and German romantic opera, medieval settings, that was very much a part of this older style. And we see it, obviously, in Lohengrin and a story of chivalry and some evil couple uh, that's actually been used in a Weber opera. Also, some sort of uh, conflict between good versus evil. And, of course, here we have the uh, Christian and pagan world in um, Lohengrin. Also, supernatural elements were very popular in the German music, and there is an element of that in Lohengrin. Uh, musically, the importance of the orchestra, not just to accompany the singers, but to have some of the drama unfolding in the orchestra. Okay, giving more em emphasis on the orchestra, the orchestral, orchestral color, um, also a more speech-oriented style of setting the text, or I should say setting the text to the rhythms of the German language, coming up with a declamation for the German language, not copying what might have been done in uh, French or Italian opera. And uh, finally, recurring motifs. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable using the word leitmotif. Maybe I'll use it later. But some small degree of recurring musical ideas that could represent different characters or different uh, actions in the opera, those were used by Weber and others. And they're used by Wagner um, in The Dutchman, Tannhäuser, but especially in Lohengrin. This is where that idea of the leitmotif really becomes more noticeable. And that, of course, is central to later works of Wagner. Uh, but there's also a debt to French Grand Opera, which was a very popular style um, during this time period. Uh, some kind of historical plot, uh, or at least a background of history, was often part of French Grand Opera. And this piece, uh, uh, you go uh, behind its kind of fairy tale story. It does have a historical setting of Henry the Fowler, a 10th century German king who tried to uh, build up an army to defeat the Hungarians who were in danger of invading the German states. And actually he did that. And that led to his uh, son, Otto the Great, uh, delivering the kind of coup de grace to the Hungarians and keeping them off out of the German borders. Um, so is, there is that background of history in this particular piece. And also very much a part of French Grand Opera is the spectacle, the stage spectacle, um, massing your chorus, your soloists, on stage instruments and processions. And of course, Act Two has a big procession to the cathedral, some of which I'll show you a little bit later. The one thing this opera does not have, 
or at least I used to say that, is ballet, which was a major part of French grand opera, but there are no dancing Saxons in this piece or Brabantians. However, I read in the review that there is some kind of choreographic element. I don't know exactly where it is, but basically in a French opera, you needed a big ballet scene, and that's not a part of this work. And just in, in general, in, uh, in uh, Lohengrin, moving away from musical numbers, trying to get a more continuous kind of style in the orchestra, um, <clears throat> moving away from a melody and accompaniment, although there still is a certain amount of that in the piece. And you also hear in Lohengrin rather four-square themes. They're kind of complete in themselves, okay? They're kind of complete musical units. And that's the nature of the leitmotifs he uses in the opera, which is why I'm a little uncomfortable using that term for them. Because in his later works, those themes tend to be open-ended. And here they often make up a complete unit, like the famous forbidden question motif. Okay, and on the subject of those leitmotifs, yeah, they are rather symmetrical, but they are important in the piece, and uh, there is a continuity in here, but you can still sense where there might have been a musical number had this been an earlier opera. I mean, he's woven everything together, but there are some clear sections that do sound like arias or duets. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, the first time Wagner was able to hear a performance of the opera was in 1861 in Vienna. He had been in exile, so this was the first time he could actually hear his work. And uh, he was very impressed by the uh, singing, the orchestra, and so forth. But he was quite bewildered, perplexed, that the Viennese audience was applauding the musical numbers as if it were an Italian opera. And they applauded the prelude and wanted Wagner to take a bow. And from Wagner's standpoint, I don't write number operas. You know, I don't write operas with these self-contained units. I write continuous music. And he simply couldn't understand why the Viennese uh, public was interrupting the opera with all this applause. And uh, Ernest Newman, Wagner's most famous biography, uh, said rather uh, uh, wittily and dryly, evidently a long course of education was needed before even Wagnerian audiences developed the habit of listening to a whole act of an opera in silence. Okay, so they would have to learn the proper etiquette for listening to Wagner. Okay, so let's start with some music and the Act One Prelude, um, which really is an extraordinary piece of music on Wagner's part. Uh, this ethereal opening in the piece as Wagner starts to unfold a theme that's going to keep spinning forward for about nine minutes. Now, it's true if you look at it carefully, there are a couple of themes embedded in this, but essentially it's the impression of just one theme, the Grail theme, that keeps unfolding during, um, during the prelude and gradually comes lower and lower in register. He adds more and more of the orchestra until there's a climax and then everything goes back up into the heavens. It's depicting the descent of the Grail brought by doves and then they go back up and it's all continuous. Again, a really extraordinary work of composition on Wagner's part, and it begins with uh, four solo violins, and then the rest of the violin section divided into four parts. So this gives you this, this wonderful luminous quality. Yeah, the gradual addition of instruments, and then the climax. Again, the sense of a halo you have in this music. 
Um, and it also shows you the progress of Wagner as a composer of overtures or preludes. Uh, the Rienzi uh, overture is a traditional potpourri of themes, very effective, but it's old-fashioned in The Flying Dutchman and Tannhäuser. He's starting to move towards an overture that is more really about trying to give you the central conflict or the central drama. And now he moves to essentially one idea, the descent of the grail. And what's the next prelude he will write? Das Rheingold, which is one chord. Uh, so it's really interesting to see his development in that manner. Okay, so uh, there's no good place to fade this out, uh, but there's not time to play all of it. So here's about two and a half minutes. The idea, and again, that sound comes back, that, that color and theme, uh, often when Lohengrin appears and he's surrounded by this halo of sound. Uh, by the way, when Franz Liszt conducted the first performance of Lohengrin uh, in the Weimar Court Theater, he had a very small orchestra and chorus. He had 11 violins. And when you figure four of them have to be soloists, and then the rest of the section, uh, you're now down to how many uh, divided four ways. It couldn't possibly have produced uh, this kind of sound. You need far more instruments and a far larger chorus than Liszt had at his disposal there in Weimar. Okay, let's move to part way into Act One, when Lo uh, Elsa is called out. Again, her first line is, my poor brother. And then she gives her dream narration about this deliverer who appeared to her in a dream. I'm going to pick, uh, pick up 
uh, partway into the uh, narration where we get the Grail motif followed by a Lohengrin motif suggesting Lohengrin is a hero. It's, they have a little a, a quiet fanfare in the orchestra and then finally a motif associated with her deliverance. Uh, and they're done one right after another, but again, they have kind of this self-contained feel, not open-ended. Nevertheless, to have the voice, or to have these underneath the voice, is the direction that he moves later in his works, uh, simply throughout the entire opera. Here you get it periodically. Um, another way of looking at, at it is, in Lohengrin, you still have plenty of freely composed musical material that you never hear again. Whereas in, say, The Ring or later Wagner operas, they're basically um, created out of a small number of motifs. Wagner's suggesting that in this scene with Elsa. And my Elsa on this recording, Kundalianovitz, has a very ethereal, clear voice, uh, which I think is uh, it's otherworldly. And I think it's perfect for uh, the role of Elsa. going to go over all of the plot, of course, but Lohengrin arrives, defeats Telramund, and there's a very celebratory chorus at the end of the act led by Elsa. And I should point out how important the chorus is to this opera and all of the acts. Uh, but while Elsa is singing at the end here her most rapturous music, ecstatic music up to this point, what she's saying is, how can I be worthy to find the words to praise this person? Uh, so there is that sense of, you know, is she really worthy of him? Now, Act uh, 2 begins in a very different manner. Uh, this is Orchard's act, really. 
and it starts with music associated with her, and um, it's very dark, a dark orchestration, emphasizing lower woodwinds, bass clarinet, English horn, um, and in addition, her motifs are more chromatic, and they are kind of open-ended, okay? More like what Wagner's going to do later, and they just kind of noodle around in the lower reaches of the orchestra, and then he will drop in a little bit of the forbidden question, and then something else. This is more like the later uh, technique, and it wonderfully creates the world of Ortrud, as the prelude to Act One created a world for uh, Lohengrin himself. Uh, so there's that wonderful contrast of color. And also, you could compare this to the opening of Act Three, uh, that famous prelude, which, which suggests the celebration now that the wedding has been over. Now, I can't play this part of it for you, but as the prelude to Act Two unfolds, you start to hear offstage fanfares. That's the revelry uh, coming from uh, the distance of the wedding. And it puts Orchard and Telramund in very, uh, uh, shows how distant they are. They are ostracized, okay? They're no longer a part of his community, and later it's going to be made public. Um, and uh, so that's a very nice way Wagner deals with this, having the dark sound uh, in the opening, and then periodically some fanfares offstage showing how far removed they are uh, from the rest of the society. Um, so here's a little bit of the Act Two prelude. you just heard at the end there was the forbidden question motif that we hear in the uh, first act and that's one of the more important motifs in the opera. As act two uh, begins and unfolds there's a duet complex between Ortrud and Telramund and it's very interesting uh, the way it's uh, built up. The first half of it is far more traditional. The second half is more the way Wagner's going to write in the future. And uh, the first half is a kind of traditional recitatif. Uh, Telramund is uh, bewailing what's happened to him, his loss of honor. And then he sings a very traditional uh, rage aria, raging over his loss of honor. It has quite a clear beginning, quite a clear ending, um, even though it's connected 
to what came before and what comes after, uh, but this is all rather traditional in nature. And then in the second half of this duet complex, an evil haze seems to descend on everything as Tellerman refers to his wife as you wild sorceress. And now things change. The phrase lengths are irregular. Uh, they're following more the declamation of the German language. We get a free play of leitmotifs underneath what they're singing. Um, and that's really important in the direction his music is going to take. Uh, they're not quite so foursquare. Um, and this is starting to suggest a more orchestral web of sound in a Wagner opera. Um, and in this, the pagan versus Christian views of the two really start to come out. Um, Telramont believes he's been struck down by God. And Ortrud sings the word God in a sarcastic manner. And Telramont uh, replies, how horrible his name sounds from your mouth. And there are several, several other lines in here where he makes a reference to God's power. And she says, your God is a coward. Um, essentially. Okay, so you do get that uh, those two different points of view um, in that particular scene. And then there's a wonderful transition to uh, Elsa's arrival as uh, Ortrud and Telramut sing a short duet in unison. Everything is dark and gradually things lighten up and Elsa sings about the breezes that brought Lo Lohengrin to her. And she's singing this from a balcony, and now everything is this more light, innocent quality uh, in contrast to what has just come before. I'm not going to play any of that, but then uh, Orchard starts working on Elza, uh, working on her fears, wants to be let in, and so uh, Elza comes down to let her into the women's quarters. Well, at this point, Orchard shows who she really is, and she sings an incredible but short vengeance aria, calling upon her gods, her defiled gods, and Vita Goethe, uh, to support her. And she calls out their names, Vodan, Freya, um, and their blasts from the orchestra at this point. She's going to get her revenge, uh, not just for the power she wants, but uh, supported by her pagan gods in here. And then when uh, Elsa calls out, Ortrud, where are you? Everything is sweetness and light, and she says, here at your feet, okay? So she is so duplicitous, acting in a servile manner at one moment, but for this spot, when nobody's around, she can show who she really is, and this is a great moment um, in the opera. So listen to this, sung by Krista Ludwig, and there's something very special that happens at the end of the aria, which I want you to notice.
applause goes on for another minute, okay, you never hear this in Wagner. You never interrupt the opera with applause. Uh, this was sung in Vienna. The Viennese audience, 100 years later, still hasn't learned Wagnerian etiquette. I heard this one other time in the 1980s when um, Eva Marton did Ortrud, and she also brought the house down with his aria. They're the only two times I've ever heard any applause interrupt a Wagner opera because, of course, Wagner's writing continuous music, except when the audience feels he's not. Um, but, uh, yeah, and you might wonder, well, you called this a rage aria, and you called Tellerman's aria a rage aria. What makes them different? Tellerman's was sort of a, a stock rage aria you pull off the shelf. Um, this was very much crafted for this particular woman, for Ortrud, and it really reflects her, and uh, it's so effective. It's almost a little bit like a cabaletta from an Italian opera. It's really kind of scary, hair-raising. Uh, we have this pagan... Uh, a princess here um, singing this. Unfortunately, what the applause does is it covers over a very important part of the scene. I mentioned earlier, Elsa calls out and she says, here at your feet. Okay, and you know, that's lost. Uh, you don't get that, that contrast in there. It's interesting to compare what she just sang with Henry's prayer in Act One. His prayer is all controlled, really sounds like a hymn. And this is wild, okay, reflecting her particular background. Okay, let's go to the procession to the cathedral, okay. This is one of the real elements of French grand opera, uh, the idea of the spectacle on the stage. And this production is uh, from the Met 1980s. It's a very traditional production. And, uh, but of course, just as they're coming to a cadence, approaching the cathedral, Ortrud interrupts. And she stops everything dead in its tracks. Uh, but up to that point, I just want you to notice this idea of the traditional uh, procession in here and a very radiant melody that keeps unfolding in the orchestra.
And then there's quite a long section with Ortrud and Telramont, and then eventually the procession picks up again, kind of where it left off, but in a different key, and moves to its conclusion, but Elza is clearly a wavering um, in here after this confrontation with Ortrud. Now, um, in Act 3, I uh, want to talk about the bridal chamber C in a little bit. It is a duet complex, and it moves from a sense of stability, lyricism, and control to a destabilization, a breakdown of structure uh, leading up to Elza eventually asking the forbidden question, which then um, Lohengrin is going to have to answer. Uh, but in the overall shape of the thing, it's really interesting to see how Wagner has done this. Starts with a recitative, a lyrical recitative, where Lohengrin is saying, we're alone for the first time alone, and leads to a little self-contained duet. She sings a beautiful melody, he sings it, they sing together. And it almost comes to a full stop, but the music continues. Um, but again, she starts, uh, Orchard has planted the seeds of doubt in her mind, and she starts moving towards wanting to ask a question, and he keeps trying to redirect her. And at one point, he, he says her name, sings her name, and she says, how sweet my name sounds coming from your lips. Uh, you know, would that I could do the same. Would that she could sing his name. All right, but uh, he puts her off. And um, so let's go to my first example of this. Um, and this is where she's you know, asked, uh, sort of hinting at she wants to know who he is. And he likens the sweet fragrance uh, that blows in on, uh, on the uh, winds to the mystery of his appearance. Okay? And we don't question how it happened. We don't question where that fragrance comes from, and therefore don't question the magic that brought me to you. This is essentially a self-contained little aria in here, very lyrical in nature, but I do need to explain my performance here. There was a tradition of Italian uh, singers doing Lohengrin. Uh, earlier in the 20th century, the uh, opera in Italy was sung in Italian. And actually, Italian was kind of an international operatic language. So it was only natural Italian singers would be doing this. But tenors in particular were drawn to the role of Lohengrin because it is so lyrical, and it really did suit qualities of, a, of the Italian uh, tenor voice. Even Caruso sang Lohengrin only three times, but under the direction of uh, Toscanini. So this particular kind of mini aria is going to be sung in, in my uh, uh, performance by Aureliano Pertile, uh, not well known in this country, but he was Toscanini's favorite tenor when Toscanini was a music director at La Scala in the 19, 1920s. Um, I'm not going to claim that Pertile's voice is the most beautiful, okay? But you'll hear there's a phrasing in here, a very subtle, tasteful use of portamento that is sliding from one note to the next, but done in a very tasteful way, um, a shaping of the phrases. And uh, when Wagner transfers the melody up a third, transposes it, uh, the voice re really opens up. Okay, uh, it's sung in Italian, but I want you to hear what happens when you get a, a really authentic Italian sound doing this music. Oh, 
but Elza keeps pushing, keeps pushing. Lohengrin once again has a kind of aria-like section, at the close of which he sings these wonderful lines, and the libretto, or as Wagner put it, poem, uh, for Lohengrin is really quite beautiful. Um, he says, I came not from night or night and sorrow, but from joy and splendor. Well, Elza in the state doesn't believe him. She thinks he's trying to trick her, okay, that she's been so poisoned by Ortrud. So finally she asks the question, and so he cannot deny her. And then everybody assembles, and he's going to explain in the famous Grail narrative where he's saying where he came from. The opening, opening of it is really a restatement of the very opening of the opera, the opening prelude. Uh, the music's placed it some different registers, but it's the same notes, really. And then he gets into explaining everything. And finally, at the climax, uh, his father is Parsifal. Uh, the, uh, he bears the, the crown of the Grail, and I'm his son, Lohengrin. Okay, this is a very famous section in the opera, and not really an aria, but not a recitative, sort of in between this arioso style of writing, very flexible in nature, and it's the direction that Wagner was going to be moving in. So I thought I would stick with our Italian tenors here, and I'm not time to do the entire aria, but this or section, but the second half of it, sung by Mario da Monaco. Um, he was the great Otello of the 1950s, okay? Um, and of course, Otello has been considered an uh, Italian held in tenor part. And here you get a sense of the declamatory a style of singing of Delmonico, especially when he gets to a couple of his high notes and he holds them out in an Italian style. And uh, so uh, this was recorded earlier in his career, 1948. Delmonico actually recorded scenes of Lohengrin in German, okay? But I'd prefer you hear it in Italian and a, a younger Delmonico.
So that's Lohengrin by way of Monrico. <laughs> anyway, but it is quite thrilling. All right. Um, Wagner was troubled about the ending to the opera. Um, in his uh, you know, stage directions, clearly Ortrud dies, clearly Elsa dies. All right. Now, what modern-day stagings do is another story entirely. Okay. Uh, but when Wagner read the poem to a group of uh, assembled friends, one of them thought that uh, Elsa's punishment was really too harsh. It was really rather cruel. And Wagner had his own doubts, but he read through uh, the poem again, considered different endings, and decided, you know, what he did originally is the way to end the opera. And so it ends on a personal level with a tragedy between Elsa and um, Lohengrin. But in a larger sense, there's something optimistic at the end of the opera. Uh, the rightful uh, heir to uh, the duchy, uh, the future Duke of Brabant, has been restored. And uh, so the society is destroyed and will continue to thrive, one, one hopes. So from this larger sense, uh, the ending is optimistic. But the smaller scale story unfolding in here, it's a tragic ending. That was Guild lecturer John J.H. Muller discussing Wagner's masterpiece Lohengrin. The production, featuring tenor Piotr Bekshawa as the Grail Knight Lohengrin, will be seen live in HD worldwide on March 18th, 2023. For more information, visit metopera.org and make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.